You're listening to Alcoholics Alive, where recovered members of Alcoholics Anonymous share their experience on how they live AA as a way of life. None of our participants get paid or speak for AA. Here are your hosts, Shank and Wayne. All right. If you have a comment or a suggestion or a question, you can email us at freedom at alcoholicsalive.com. We've recently received some feedback from a couple of folks that uh, have been enjoying the podcast. So we, we appreciate the positive feedback. We get enough criticism. So when we get, <laughs> when we get some positive feedback, we appreciate it. So if you're listening right now, hit the like button or make a comment or follow us. We would, uh, we would appreciate it. Our guest today is, um, well, she's from Fayetteville, or she's living in Fayetteville right now. Uh, her name's Christy. Christy, how are you? I'm good. How are you? We're doing well. I think we are anyway. <laughs> yep. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, well, um, I got sober March 30th, 1997 at the ripe old age of 15. And uh, like most teenagers, you know, we, we dibble and we dabble. Uh, the, the thing with me though, is, uh, it was the only, it was the only solution. It was the only way I could get through anything, um, whether it was studying, whether it was practicing sports, whether it was, um, dealing with parents, cause that's what we do as teenagers. We deal with our parents, um, you know, and, and then it just, it, it got completely out of control. And I remember, um, you know, I got physical with my, with my baby sister, And, you know, I was an athlete and she was just a tiny little thing. Um, I ended up in the hospital, Um, you know, and I think, I think what was, what was really hard for me was I was 15 and I was in the pediatric ward and there was a doctor that came up to me and told me I was throwing my life away. And there were kids there that were fighting for their lives. And he made me mad, like, cause he was getting in the way of me going out and, and, you know, drinking again. Like he was just getting in the way of that. Like, can you just sign my papers so that I can leave? Uh And, um, you know, it didn't, it didn't dawn on me then obviously that I I probably really had a problem, you know, and, um, life really likes to circle back. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, my parents, you know, they, they had a, an alcoholic son and they, they knew what to do and go to rehab and, you know, seek treatment and do the meetings and get your paper signed and all that stuff. And so I did what I did and that didn't stop me. You know, I still went out and partied and spring break, like every good teenager on spring break. Um, but I think, you know, really what did it for me was, was I went, I was, I'm from DC originally, Northern Virginia. And I went out with some, with some friends and, um, I don't remember what happened. And I think it was like, here you go. Okay. I'll take it. You know what I mean? And it's like, can there be more? And, and, and I woke up the next morning and and I was at my friend's house and just in a state that, that no, that nobody ever wants to be in. And that was it. That was it for me. Like, I was like, I'm never like, I can't, I can't ever be at a a point where I don't have control over myself and what happens to me, Um, which is ironic with AA, especially with that first step. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so, um, I, I went home and, and I chugged a bunch of liquor and poured the rest down the drain and ran downstairs and, and shoved it in the trash can. And I looked at my dad and I said, I'm done. He was like, okay. He didn't even like, he didn't really get it. You know what I mean? Like he didn't get it. The next day was Easter Sunday. So that was, uh, <laughs> that was good, good Catholic family. First day sober trying to eat dinner. That was, uh, that was interesting, but I'm still here. So still here. You got been sober still since here. you were 15. Since I was 15. That's awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. Yeah. Well, we're, we're glad you made it out of the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't know what to do with kids back then. I still don't think they know, need to really know what to do with teenagers. Um, no, I'm just don't. grateful. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm grateful though, that, um, you know, I, I was able to, to find a solution and uh, kicking and screaming though. You couldn't get me to, to change anything about me or work any type of program. It was homework and I didn't need any more, you know? But all right, Shank, what's our topic? Our topic today, um, we are on episode eight. So this is the eighth sentence of the ninth step promises. And our topic today is self-seeking will slip away. Yes. So you would think this would be an easy one. At least I did. The more I kind of tried to think about it, the less I knew. So, yeah, I'm with you there, Christy. What's your uh, what's your experience with self seeking slipping away? Let me tell you something. <laughs> Being <Tell> a, <laughs> you know, there's nothing in the book that says, you know, when you get sober, you don't you don't want to uh, listen to your, that you're going to immediately start listening to your parents and your family and do what you're told. Um, I wish there was, uh, but you know, I was, I remember I was 18. I was like, it was like, I don't know, a couple, two and a half years sober or something like that. And, um, and I wanted to go to Woodstock 99 and my parents wouldn't let me go. And I was like, I'm 18. You can't tell me what to do. You know? And as long as you live under my house, you're going to obey my rules. That, that whole, Right thing that we've all experienced that I have repeated myself as a parent. And so I did the greatest thing in the world. And I moved out without a license and without a car and waiting tables. It was (laughs) was fantastic. And I didn't call my sponsor. I I will tell you, I did not make a phone. I just, you know, I wanted what I wanted and and I was going to do it. And no one could tell me any different. And I used to take like a taxi cab to work because there was an Uber. None of that was going on. Like I had to call it a taxi cab. Um, so yeah, I, I moved out and, um, you know, a couple, couple months later I found out I was pregnant and, um, you know, like, you know, you ever, like every girl, like it's not going to happen to me. It's not going to happen to me, you know? And so now I'm like, I'm sober. Um, I'm out on my own. I don't, you know, have really any mode of transportation, Um, and my mom actually was the one that told me I was pregnant and, um, she was right. She was right. Moms know, they know those things. And, you know, so a couple of months went by and I'm like, you know, trying to figure out what I'm going to do. You know what I mean? What was I going to do? And, um, I went, I got a job that had health insurance because I didn't even have health insurance. 
And um, I remember going to a meeting and I, I shared about it. And one of my really good friends who's still sober to this day, um, you know, he used to always like look at his feet whenever people would share. And <laughs> that man like looked up like real quick and was like, what? <laughs> like, you're the goody goody, you know? And uh, anyway, so to fast forward about, it wasn't about me anymore. You know, it wasn't about me. And um, I, I, you know, did the health insurance. I got a job, wasn't, still wasn't making enough money. And I decided, you know, that I was, it was probably best for me to place, place the child for adoption. And um, that was like, yeah, I didn't know, like, if I should or shouldn't, am I, am I being like, am I being selfish because I'm, you know, giving this baby right. away or am I being selfish? Cause I'm keeping, if I keep it, like, what, am, what, what is it? And so I prayed for the first time in a really, really long time. And I spent the night at my parents' house that night and I prayed and I heard on the radio the next morning that this awesome country singer had just found her birth mother. And I was like, okay, God, okay. That's my answer, you know? And I met this amazing couple who had tried for years to have children. And, um, you know, so I'm like five, six months pregnant at this point. I had gone through the entire pregnancy alone. I didn't have anybody with me. Um, and, you know, at that point in time, like I wasn't alone anymore. I had somebody, like I had a family with me, holding my hand, going to doctor's appointments with me. And at that point, it wasn't about, me feeling alone, it was, I was now carrying this child for a couple that wanted a child and did everything they could in eight years and, and wasn't able to have a child. And, um, I remember like, you know, when he was born, they were there with me and they, they held their son for the first time, you know? And it was like, it was the hardest, it was the hardest decision I ever had to make. Like it questioned my faith, you know, trusting and believing in something that you have absolutely no control over. You have no idea. I don't know these people. I don't know if they're going to, you know, what kind of people they are, but it wasn't about me and my son. It was about this amazing couple and mm -hmm. their child. And I got to be like, I tell everyone to this day that I got pregnant so that they could be parents, you know, and, and the hope and the, the love and, and, and recovery, right here we are 23 years later and we, we know each other, hmm. you know, like he's very much involved in my life and, and his brother's lives and his parents and I get along phenomenally. We love each other very much. And it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful situation, but it wasn't about me. You know, people would, people would say, Are you selling your baby. Like it was crazy. People would say the craziest thing. No, no. It's not about me. It's about this this little innocent child that didn't ask to to be born to a teenager that didn't have a car or <laughs> waited tables, you know? Yeah. Um, and so really like, and I think, you know, going back to meetings after that, um and and people people being there throughout the second part of it, the grief side of it, you know. Um, but I never had regret. Cause it wasn't about me, mm -hmm. you know, and it's crazy that it takes, it can take that long for some people to really be mature enough in their recovery to, to know what those promises mean and how they apply in your life. Yeah. Awesome story. Thanks. I think. 
Yeah, awesome story. Shank, has uh, anything uh, self-seeking ever slipped away for you? It came back, didn't it? (laughs) (laughs) How long is self-seeking supposed to be slipped away? It just slips away for a few minutes. Um, Well, okay, so I looked up the definition of slip because I assumed I knew what it meant. And if anything that this podcast has provided for me, it's that... I know even less than I think I know. You know, my sponsor typically tells me that I know more than I understand, which is probably pretty true. Um, but I don't even really think I know or understand as much as I think that I do. So which is to, probably pretty true. It's probably pretty true. So slip is to escape from memory or consciousness. Escape mm. from memory or consciousness. Mm. Interesting. Right. Okay. Yes, that is interesting. Self-seeking, the act or practice of selfishly advancing one's own ends. So Hmm. when I was thinking about specifically early on in my sobriety, um, you know, the only couple of things that really I could come up with, one was more of a functionality of not having money, but, um, you know, I had a court appointed attorney and things like that. And, and I was told by people who really loved and cared about me, who had been through legal issues before, like, Hey, you should try to get in front of a certain judge. You should try to get some money together and get a better attorney. You should, um, you know, kind of wait this out a little bit, get sober a little bit longer. Um, all really good advice, I think, but I just knew kind of deep down that, I needed to deal with the consequences of my actions from drinking. And part of that was going ahead and going to prison, if that's what it meant. And that is what it meant. So I don't know that that necessarily is um, self-seeking, slipping away from me. But I did want to go ahead and uh, get through some of these consequences and be able to amend these situations so that I could live a free life. Um, I just really couldn't imagine continuing to live in such a way of like, oh, am I going to go tomorrow? Is there a cop behind me? Is it like, I just couldn't imagine living like that. It seemed very opposite of how I was trying to live being sober in AA, even though I only had a couple of months, like I'd figured out that I had been selfish my entire life, but specifically through my drinking. So I'm not totally sure that that qualifies necessarily, but that's kind of what I was thinking. Well, I think it does. I mean, you did what was best for other people instead of what was best for you. Well, you could have I easily know. drugged that out and gotten a different outcome. <laughs> yes. But you took responsibility for your actions. Yes. And yeah. I do know too, that when I was at my sentencing, you know, the people that I had harmed physically due to my drinking and drinking and driving were there and they wanted to talk to me. And another thing is I remember telling my sponsor, like, I can't do that. You know, like, I'm going to tell the attorney, like, I don't think I can do that. And she said, well, it's a good thing. It's not about you. <laughs> right. And I was able to be in a room with them while they told me some really hard truths about things that they had been through and rehabs they were going to have to continue to go through for a period of time. And then I was also able to hear, like, the most caring and loving statements that I ever have from people who have been harmed. Of uh, They could tell that I was trying to have a relationship with God. Maybe not their Christian God. They didn't say that, but um, 
and that they hoped I continued to do that while I was incarcerated and thereafter. And I believe that I have, and it's not to impress them. I don't have any contact with them. I'm not legally allowed to, but, um, you know, I do believe that that also, I, I really did not want to be in that room with them at a sentencing when they were getting ready to take me underneath the courthouse to the jail, to the prison. <laughs> like that was not my idea of fun, you know, as I'm all shackled, it was like, in- insanely, I was so ashamed, you know, but yeah. being able to work through that was, um, you know, I needed a sponsor though, to tell me that it was not about me and I needed to just show up and allow those people to do whatever they needed to do or say whatever they needed to say. Mm-hmm. I think it shows up also just in little things. Like when you, when you get sober, you, I mean, I know like for me, I started, you know, taking people to meetings and I would have never done anything like that. Um, my, you know, my living situation wasn't, wasn't optimal. I'd lived in the living room of my dad's house and my wife didn't immediately come back. And I look on that trying, instead of trying to fight that, I just, I kind of complied with it. And, you know, looking back on it, that probably wasn't me. Um, and, I it I was probably sober years before I completely understood the idea that selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of our troubles because it, it doesn't really look like that. It looks like it's more of you people aren't treating me right and I don't make enough money <laughs> and right. I, I, I didn't have the, the best, you know, upbringing and crap like that. I think that one, one, I think I've shared this before, but one time where I, I mean, I consciously remember, like this happening it's two situations similar to what y'all were saying that me and my first wife had gotten back together and i thought things were going well i was delusional looking (laughs) back on it but i i thought things were going fine and you know i'm sober almost four years and she comes home and says she's leaving and that um, uh, she had met some dude at the beach with my, when, at, and she was, she was leaving and I didn't fight it. I just, I literally just said, okay, what can I do to help? And that was not me. And, you know, so, I mean, looking back on that, it was just a situation where I, I mean, the, the principles and the steps and what we talk about here, I mean, it, it actually, I saw it like in full force that, I mean, it's not what I wanted, but I didn't try to fight it. I just, I, I tried to, I tried to help her and support her best as I could. Um, so I think that's probably you know, an example where we, we start, I mean, I don't know if we'll ever, ever be free of, com- of completely of selfishness, and self-centeredness, but we, we start thinking about others and we start thinking about what we can contribute instead of what we can take. So that doesn't always have to, <laughs> uh, it, but then it comes, it comes back. Yeah. It does actually. It really does. It, it does. Yeah. I think it probably one of the things that helps me a lot is being involved in the lives of other people though. And it, it seems like the more I try to, try to help others and, and, you know, make myself available for new people that 
that keeps me in a, a better frame of mind of not thinking that everything's about me. I do think it's uh, it's definitely more difficult working with it's difficult for me to engage in certain behaviors when I'm working with newcomers because I just see myself when I was yeah. new in that mm-hmm. and I'm like you know maybe it's how we all act whatever maybe it's some kind of rite of passage in the cult of AA that you have to have poor behavior in early sobriety <laughs> but um you know <laughs> I just see myself in, in all of it you know, like I, I was not honest about the fact that I'd even, we were talking about this earlier, been to prison for a while. Like when I would speak, when I would share a meetings, if I did for a while, like you would not have known that at all. You know, like I didn't want to help other people who had been in that situation because I didn't want any of you all to know that's where I had been. So <laughs> I was quite selfish still um, yeah. in my first several years. Yeah. Have there uh, been any amends for you all that specifically helped you realize that this was gone, maybe later in your sobriety? Christy? Yeah. So, you know, what's funny is um, like my sponsor and I literally were just kind of having a a conversation about this a few weeks ago. Um, It took, you know, I mean, I made my amends, you know, like, you know, you you do the, the normal you know, yep. to your family and all that. Right. But it took almost 20 years for me to have a true, be able to make a true heartfelt amends to my parents, especially my mom. And when I OD'd, because until I had a 15 year old myself, did I truly, could I even fathom what that must've been like for her? to sit in that hospital chair while her daughter's laying in the bed. You know what I mean? And, and now I have a 15 year old and, and I have, you know, multiples, but it, it took, it took me to really have a teenager. And, and, and I remember calling her on the anniversary of when I OD'd and I just started bawling and I was like, I'm sorry, it's not enough. It's not enough. I can't even imagine what you went through. Like I was a piece of crap, you know? And the beautiful thing was though, um, she, she said to me, the life that you're living and the people that you help and not just in, in, you know, our circle, but other, other areas of, of advocacy, you know, um, and, and being an example to, to my children of, the type of person that, you know, I strive to be being that example for them. But because really at the end of the day, that's, that's what making amends is to put, to, to right the wrong, to put things back the way they were. Right. And, um, but I, sometimes, you know, in my experience, you know, I made, I made the basic amends in the beginning and, you know, 10 years down the road, but it wasn't until I had any idea what that must've felt like that I do that. Well, that must be why they say sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. <laughs> must be. Mm, that's, that's a powerful story. Thank you. Uh, Shank, let's move on to Battle of the Books. Mm, let's get ready to rumble. All right. Everyone's favorite segment. <laughs> get ready, Christy. Battle oh, of the Books. We are on step eight, round eight. So far, 
I know I sound I'm just repetitive, but so far the big book is just, I mean, really killing it. So we undefeated will see. at this point. Yes, if step eight, uh, I'm a twelve um, and twelve fan, is going to. All right, here we go. <laughs> We're about to throw down. Okay, so this is our segment where we take a reading from the big book and the twelve and twelve. We put them up against each other, see which one we like better, and that's the one we keep. So for the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, this is from page 76. And it says, we have a list of all persons we had harmed and to whom we were willing to make amends. We made it when we took inventory. We subjected ourselves to a drastic self-appraisal. Now we go out to our fellows and repair the damage done in the past. We attempt to sweep away the debris which have accumulated out of our effort to live on self-will and run the show ourselves. If we haven't the will to do this, we ask until it comes. Remember, it was agreed at the beginning we would go to any lengths for victory over alcohol. And then the 12 by 12, this is from pages 81 to 82. It says, then, as year by year we walk back through our lives as far as memory will reach, we shall be bound to construct a long list of people who have, to some extent or other, been affected. We should, of course, ponder and weigh each instance carefully. We shall want to hold ourselves to the course of admitting the things we have done, meanwhile forgiving the wrongs done to us, real or fancied. We should avoid extreme judgments, both of ourselves and of others involved. We must not exaggerate our defects or theirs. A quiet, objective view will be our steadfast aim. All right, we're open for discussion. Uh, open for discussion. Ooh, ooh, pick me. What do you Christy, think, Christy? Go for it. <laughs> what I, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the twelve and twelve. I just, I really, really am. It just really breaks, breaks it down, right? But what I love most, or there's, there's a couple of words in the twelve and twelve that are not in the, in the chapter or the, the paragraph you read in the big book, and that is, meanwhile, forgiving. The wrongs done to us, real or fancied. And then it also says we must not exaggerate our defects or theirs, and where it talks about both of ourselves and of others involved. So I read that and it reminds me that I also need to give myself a break and I need to forgive myself. And I don't I don't see that. And I'm in in the in um, page 76 of the big book. I think it's just so important that we not beat ourselves up to the point of like we think we're these awful awful people that can never amount to anything you know what i mean we have to forgive ourselves we have to we have to be at the top of that list so this was one thing that i actually asked um jerry before we started recording i said okay so meanwhile forgiving the wrongs done to us real or fancied maybe you can clarify for me a little bit on that one but um there are several things that i don't think i have forget wrongs that have been done to me that i don't necessarily believe i have forgiven although jerry made a good point that the fact that i have moved forward and i don't have ill will toward those people then that means that i probably have a forgiving spirit about it Mm -hmm. um which i think is kind of the the point of the steps um you all can clean that up if it's not. I do like we must not exaggerate our defects or theirs because listen, 
the number of times that I hear, and listen, if this is you, keep doing it if you feel like this is your truth, but like if I had been caught for everything I'd done, I'd be, I'd be underneath the jail or the, because you probably wouldn't. If you didn't go to jail or prison to begin with, you probably had enough money to stay out of there. You know what I'm saying? Um, or even exaggerating like how uh, much I drink or how long I, when I was making amends to a couple of girlfriends, there was this one time that we went out on this little John boat and um, we each had like a 24 case, each person. And I was so afraid because I was the one who had to drive. So I was pouring them out on the side of the boat and mine was completely gone. Like I wasn't paying attention to how much they were drinking. And they were like, oh my God, you drank all of that. You don't even seem drunk. What is wrong with you? And when I went back and made amends, I was asked specifically about that. I did not want to be honest about the fact that I had poured them out, you know? So like, I can't exaggerate either way, like wanting to sound worse than I was or wanting to sound better. Um, so I do really appreciate that that is put in there. Good sponsorship has allowed me to not um, be able to do that in most cases, I would think. Because uh, my sponsors will call me out in a second. My current mm-hmm. sponsor just still calls me a con all the time and won't let me drive her anywhere. So she still thinks <laughs> I'm probably a bad driver. What do you think, Jerry? Well, now this thing says we we forgive the wrongs done to us. Right? Mm-hmm. Yes. The 12 by 12 reading. Okay. I, I actually like the, the idea of avoiding extreme judgments because we end the, the idea of not exaggerating our defects or theirs because we are high drama people and we love to exaggerate things and we love to embellish things and we love to make things bigger than what they really are so i mean i i kind of uh like that wording i um however <laughs> the however comma <laughs> yeah if i go to the to the big book reading i i like the idea that it tells me that we've got a list from our inventory it's specific and my I was my experience with the big book and I know it's not in this actual reading here but the idea of forgiving others and um, becoming willing to make the amends happens in the fourth step if you follow the instructions in the big book right the I don't call it this, but you'll hear people in a call it. Well, I said the sick man's prayer. Uh, I, I've never actually read that in the book, but there is a process in the fourth step of where we look at people as they're spiritually sick. And then there's a prayer in there that we say, well, that prayer is meant to help me forgive that person for what I think they've done to me. And I know that, so that, that process happens to you know in the in the in the fourth step, the idea of forgiving others or letting people off the hook. Um, and then I like this one, the big book reading, because it tells me that hey, dude, you made a decision earlier earlier to go to any lengths. You need to remember that, and if you're not willing to meet that obligation, you should pray for willingness. So there's an eight-step prayer there. 
If we have in the will to do this, we ask until it comes. So, um, they're both very good readings, actually. Well, the other thing is um, we should, of course, ponder and weigh each instance carefully, which um, I've uh-huh. I've never been accused of pondering or weighing each instance carefully. Like I could sh- I could probably do some more of that in my sobriety today. But I do live with someone who ponders and weighs each instance carefully, and it seems like complete and utter hell, to be quite honest with you. Just to, like, think so much and think and think and think. Um, That kind of, like, makes, I don't know, that brings to the forefront of my mind, I guess. Like, if my self-seeking has slipped away, I probably know intuitively kind of what the right decision we haven't gotten there yet um and the promises but i probably know kind of what the right decision is um if i if i ponder and weigh stuff i'm never going to make a decision but that's just me i know that some people love you know pondering and thinking through things and it's uh that's where it gets this reading gets a little flowery to me yeah, uh-huh. he's just. I'll, I'll tell you what I like though. I like how it starts off by saying, "Then, as year by year we walk through our lives, as far as memory will reach, we shall be bound to construct a long list of people." You know, I've I've done multiple fourth steps. You know what I mean? And and even when I got to the eighth step, I had to go back and like add people because I forgot. Sure. You know? Right. So what I like, and, and that's, you know, everyone, every, everyone's got different opinions on, on how many times you should go through the steps or inventory or whatever. And that's, that's fine. Um, however, for me, um, I like the fact that it's a lifestyle, you know, and it's not a, you okay. Cause I, I did, I used to treat it when I first came in and, and had a sponsor that tricked tricked me into doing the 12 steps she did she was i was like oh and then i'll graduate if i do them all right awesome sweet you know um but then as i like as i matured in sobriety like i did i learned that this is a lifestyle change and and i don't ever want to really be done you know i and and if something does come back to or you know there was people that in my first few years of sobriety i didn't i I will not make events to them ever. They were mean to me, you know, and whatever. And this just kind of tells me, you know, I have, I can continue to grow. Okay. Okay. Um, You all seem ready to vote. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Christy. Oh, I'm a 12 and 12 all day long. Wow. (laughs) Wayne. Well, I am. I'm going with the big book. Surprise! So yeah. something that we have not done yet, I don't believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Wayne, is we have not thrown this to the listeners yet this season. We have not. And if okay, you'll so vote, the... we won't have to. But I, so, see, where, I see where you're going with this I shit. think you're that afraid. this may need to be one that we give to the listeners just you can make one of us mad and just vote it doesn't matter and (laughs) see if we get any swaying um emails 
Instagram, Threads, X, Facebook. What else we got? Okay, we're going to throw it out to our listeners. Tumblr. Tumblr. Yes. Because this has been the best discussion I think we've had. Finally, someone has been willing to defend their favorite and not just go with what we say. So let's give the listeners, let's see what we can drum up with them. We will do it. So if you're out there listening, email us or hit us up on one of the social media platforms. We'll send some information out on it soon. But if you're listening, go ahead and just send us your vote, either for the 12 by 12 reading or the big book reading. We may give it a little while. We'll see. And we'll clean it up. We'll Uh, give us one a little while. Yeah, we'll give now, it a couple episodes. Now, here's what I was envisioning, Shank, as Christy was talking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we need to have an episode. We'll get Christy and Bob. Now, Bob defended the 12 and 12 pretty good. He did. We'll get Bob and Christy on, and we'll let them debate with Graham and Punky. Oh, that <laughs> would be fun. Huh? That would be fun. On, on Graham and Punky for the big book and Christy and Bob for the 12 by 12. See we need happens. buzzers, though, so that they can buzz in quickly. Is there mm-hmm. a I like that. for buzzers? <laughs> Especially step one. Step one in the 12 on 12 is fantastic. Christy. It specifically stop talks about <laughs> that young is the people. Worst, that is the worst <laughs> writing ever. Now, it listen. talks about young people. It completely contradicts the big book. It Don't com- get it com- him started, Grissy. It completely contradicts the uh, the doctor's opinion. So we need to have it, 12 and 12 it, Jeopardy. I'm just yeah. throwing that out it there. It talks about you know raising the bottom about. raising the bottom for people. Well, hell, you, you, you drank Freedom. enough. Nobody needed to raise the bottom for you. Freedom. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. Christy, we appreciate you coming on. Thank you for inviting me. This was lots of fun. I enjoyed great it. Dis- great discussion. And um, vote for uh, the 12 by 12 or the big book. Let us know which one you prefer. And continue to listen for more of Christy's story. It's been a while since I've stood at the podium, but it feels really good to be here. Um, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, gratitude is an action word for me, and I'm really grateful to be here. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be standing here. My sobriety date is March 30th, 1997. I walked into the wonderful doors of Alcoholics Anonymous at, Alcoholics Anonymous at the ripe old age of 15, and somebody told me, you don't ever have to drink again. So if there's any newcomers in this room, I don't care how young or mature you are, um, you don't ever have to drink again. Um, it's just you don't have to. If you don't want to, you don't have to. Um, so probably like most people, I started drinking at like seven. Beer was kind of cool, but it gave me a headache, made my stomach upset, but it didn't matter because it was cool. I had a really awesome older brother. I came from a really, and still do come up from a really, really awesome home. Um, great Catholic parents. I went to CCD. I got my first communion and my confirmation and told the priest I ate Oreos when I wasn't supposed to, and then I was fine. So it was like 10 Hail Marys and 50 Hail Fathers and you'll be fine. Um, just grew up in a good, just, you know, my dad was my soccer coach and, um, you know, life was awesome. And when I was 12 years old, 
I went downstairs and I smelled cigarette smoke. And I was like, oh, who's smoking? And it was my brother. And he was two years older than me. And I opened up the door and I was like, oh. and he goes, just, what? And I was like, oh my God, you're smoking. And he's like, look, meet me down here at midnight tonight and you can try it. I was like, really? And he's like, yeah. What he was doing was he was like getting me to smoke so that I wouldn't tell on him, right? So my brother was, you know, like one of my best friends. So I snuck downstairs and I remember like taking a McDonald's straw the night, like, like an hour before and like practicing to see like, would I be cool? Like I was like, you know, like, what do I do? I suck when I come in. I was like trying to practice. Anyway, I snuck downstairs. I got out of the house. I smoked. It was a camel wide unfiltered cigarette. It was really intense, but the rush, the, the, that, that rush through my body was like, oh my gosh, I just, I want this again and again and again. So he said, well, tomorrow meet me down here again, and we'll do it again. And I was like, okay. So the next night I snuck down, and we had a cigarette, and then he pulled out a bottle of liquor. And it was a prescription cap bottle, like cap, like, you know. And he poured it. And I said, well, why don't I get the orange bottle, like the whole thing? And he's like, you can't hang. And I was like, so right off the bat, like I already wanted more, right? So I tried it. I loved the burn. It was great. It was intense. It gave me this rush. And so that was kind of like our thing. So my brother and I used to sneak downstairs at midnight after mom and dad went to bed and we smoked cigarettes and we drank liquor. And I, I don't know what it was. It didn't matter. Um, but I couldn't tell on my brother. Shortly after that, my dad lost his job of like 17 years. He worked for a really awesome, he was like a salesman, you know, suit and tie type, came home with a Bonneville every other year. Um, and he went to driving a school bus. And I, to this day, think that my dad is one of the most uh, humble, amazing, um, just exemplary man that, that ever was. Great father. Um, and he made sacrifices for his family. And that's important for my story. Um, when my dad lost his job, my mom had to go back to work, which was great for me because, so she had to be home, like we had to pick her up at one o'clock in the morning, so I still got to sneak out at 12, and then my parents wouldn't be there, and I got to have my cigarette and my drink with my brother, so it was, it was great. And then um, my parents just didn't understand me. I go into middle school, and they, they, you know, they were just horrible, horrible people. They were great, but they, they were horrible. They didn't understand me, so I met this... You know, you go to middle school and you have all these new friends and everything's really awesome. And we all decided we were going to run away. We were going to steal my uh, best friend's grandmother's truck and we were going to change the license plate. I lived in Virginia, so we were going to change it like every state. We were going to steal a license plate from a different state. And we had it all planned out. Well, I guess one of the moms got wind of it and called my mom. And so my older sister picked me up from school and I just felt like the coolest person ever. So at this point, like I'm 13 and I'm getting picked up by the high school sister in the car. And my mom had asked, whatever you do, can you stay with her tonight? Make sure she doesn't run away. My sister's like, yeah, woo, we had so much fun that night. Lots and lots of alcohol, lots of cigarettes and some other things. And I remember passing out in the front seat of the car and my sister having to go pick up my mom from work and my mom was completely oblivious, or so I thought. She thought I was just sleeping. Um, for the first time, there were guys paying attention to me, and I was like, oh, this is just the best life ever. I'm pretty now. I'm 
you know, free to do whatever I want to do because alcohol just makes you do that. I'm smoking cigarettes like a cool person, and I just felt like life was great. What I didn't like, though, was the feeling the next morning or not remembering certain things that would happen. Um, after a couple of years, um, it wasn't fun anymore. And I remember sneaking my mom's wine before school. Like I would pour it into orange juice, um, white Zinfandel and orange juice. Like who does that? Um, but I did. And uh, my mom had like, you know, all this liquor that was probably like older than she was in the liquor cabinet and we, we would pour it out and then like put iced tea and replace it thinking that we weren't gonna get caught. I learned later in life my mom knew the whole time. Um, so my brother uh, was in private school and he got caught smoking marijuana for the ripe old third time in his life going back into school and got expelled and immediately got put on probation because they got arrested. It was a whole mess. And so all the attention was on my brother and getting him in to, you know, to rehab and to meetings. And I looked at that as, great, dad's working two jobs. All eyes are on Mike. Mom's working all the time. I could party. And I totally took full advantage. When I was 15 years old, it was December 4th, 1996. And I remember that day because it was my neighbor's daughter's birthday, and I was supposed to spend time with her. Instead, I had decided to mix alcohol and acid, and uh, it was not a very good experience. And I broke down, and I hit my sister because she, my little sister, um, she was only 11, and she was standing in front of the liquor cabinet, and she just kept begging me not to drink, and I just punched her really hard and down whatever I could get my hands on. Um, I ended up getting taken to the emergency room and had to drink charcoal. I don't know if anyone's ever drinking too much alcohol and then had to drink charcoal, but when you're throwing up the charcoal and having acid in your body, it's not a good experience. And my mom stayed with me the whole time and the next day, a doctor walks in, and instead of saying, oh, you poor thing, you know, you know you shouldn't drink alcohol, you shouldn't do drugs, you shouldn't do any of that, he looked at me and said, do you realize there are kids in this unit that are fighting for their lives and you are throwing yours away? The person next to me had leukemia but I wasn't gonna get leukemia and I was invincible and you're just a butthole, so I'm gonna go back to doing what I do. Um, my parents didn't um, really know what to do at that point except put me in rehab and put me in these meetings that my brother went to. Um, I wasn't an alcoholic, I didn't have a problem, all eyes were on Mike, I was fine. And I could stop by myself and I just wasn't gonna drink anymore. Um, that didn't last very long. Um, I'd come home from school and I'd sneak my dad's beer. Um, my parents did put me in rehab, uh, but I decided I was just going to kind of do that, like pretend and, and just do whatever they said and I'd be fine. What did it for me was it was spring break. It was my sophomore year of high school. And I went out with some friends 
and it, you know, like one night it was like, well, as long as there's somebody that's not drinking, I can go because then I'll get home safe. So I can drink as long as you're not drunk and you can drive, then I'll go out. Well, everyone got drunk. I got in the car. I was the one without the seatbelt. And I remember being really scared that I wasn't going to make it home. And by the grace of God, I did. Um, and I got out of the car, and my neighbor was like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, I just drove with a drunk driver. And he's like, and? And I was like, oh, other people do that? And he's like, yeah. I was like, oh, okay. Like, All right, I can do it again. Did that for a couple more days over spring break. Um, but one night I went out with uh, one of my girlfriends, and she's like, I got two guys to go out with us tonight. I didn't know who they were. They were older. They were cute. Like in their 20s, I'm 15. Um, we went into DC. Um, they bought some stuff. It didn't matter to me what it was. Um, I just remember nothing. I woke up the next morning um, just in a state of knowing that something had happened that night that I didn't want to have happen. And I downed some orange juice and vodka poured the rest down the drain, and said, I'm never doing this again. I wasn't going to put myself in a situation anymore that I didn't have complete control over. And I say that with a smile because what's the first step? <laughs> Admitting that we're powerless, right? So it was Easter Sunday was my first day sober, and I was trying to sit at the dinner table, and I had the shakes, and I'm 15 years old. I'm not supposed to be addicted to anything. I'm not supposed to have a problem with anything, so why am I shaking? Um, it took me 30 days to go to my first meeting, and for 90 days, I introduced myself as I'm Christy, and I'm not an alcoholic. When I finally admitted that I was an alcoholic, I think the entire room clapped, because they're like, here's the little girl. And I was like, oh, look, the only reason I'm still here is because you see these five hot guys in the front row? Like, that's the only reason I'm coming back. Like, that, that's it. These, these Danny, Donnie, Joe, John, and Jordan, like those five, you know, like that was it. Um, and I remember them telling me I needed to get a sponsor, and I was like, a what? I don't need another adult telling me what to do. I already got two of them, and they're on my butt all the time, and you know, whatever. Um, I got sober up in Fairfax, Virginia. It was the absolute best place for me at the time to get sober because there was a lot of other young people. And we fellowshiped. We learned how to have fun and stay sober. Um, you know, I'm not sure if you guys have heard of Icky Paw, but Icky Paw's a big, big retreat that we have, and we have conventions. And, you know, I was the girl that wasn't going to date Danny, Donnie, Joe, John, or Jordan. Like, they kept me coming back, but I wasn't going to date them because I didn't want to be the person at the wedding going, oh, yeah, I, you know, y'all know, can, I didn't want to be that girl. So even at an early age, um, I wanted the, the house and the white picket fence and the walk-in closet. I didn't, I didn't want to work for it. Um, I just knew what I wanted, and I knew what I wasn't going to do to get it because that's one of the reasons that I got sober. Um, years went on. I, I did get a sponsor. She was absolutely amazing, um, and she worked me through some steps. And... I kind of felt like, you know, life was getting a little bit better. My parents were trusting me again. 
Um, it was, I wanted to go to Woodstock 99, and my parents told me I couldn't go, and I was like, but I'm 18, and I have three years sober. You should trust me to go. They were like, not as long as you're living under this house, so I moved out at 18. And um, two days before Christmas, my mom asked me if I was pregnant, and I looked at her and was like, no, there's no, and I start counting on my fingers. She took me to the doctor the next day, and I found out that I was, in fact, pregnant. And I was pretty um, embarrassed, and I remember going to a meeting that night and sharing that I was pregnant. And uh, a good friend of mine, um, I was crying in the car, and he came and he sat in the car, and he looked at me, and he said, let me explain something to you. You're pregnant. You need to accept it, and you have about, like, seven months to get it together. So just, you know. <laughs> and I was like, aren't you supposed to be, like, comforting me and telling me it's going to be okay? And, da -da 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 -da. and he's like, yeah, no, that's not what we do in AA. Like, we call you out on your stuff, and we tell you to, to get it together. So his father was... Um, not really in the picture. He was not in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, I had moved back home and heard on the radio that Faith Hill had just found her birth mother. And it was that moment in time, because the night before I had prayed for some guidance, and it was that moment in time that I decided if I should place the child for adoption. And I did. And I found this amazing couple, and they're just great. And I was no longer alone in my pregnancy. There was a woman coming to me to my doctor's appointments and listening to the heartbeat. And it was beautiful. And for the first time in a really long time, I didn't feel alone. I felt accepted. Um, when I was pregnant, I was very embarrassed. And I stopped. I took a step back from AA because I just, I was so embarrassed. And I wasn't calling my sponsor, and I sure as heck wasn't working any steps. Um, went through the adoption, and, um, you know, I have an open adoption, and I have an amazing relationship with my son, who's 19 years old, and he's like 6'3", and he's huge, and he's tall, and I love him. And he's always known me his whole life. And if I was out there getting drunk, I wouldn't be able to have that relationship because his biological father was out getting drunk and the couple of times that he did go to see him, his parent, my, my son's parents were like, I don't, I don't think so, I don't think so. So I fast forward a few years, I decided to start going back to meetings because I was grieving. I was grieving the loss of a child even though he was alive. It was the hardest thing I ever did and um, I got a job offer to go work in the Middle East, and I did, and it was great, and I loved it, and I prayed about it, and it came, and I went and I worked in the Middle East, and I met this amazing, gorgeous man who later became my husband, and great, wonderful, awesome marriage, but he was like, I don't know how I feel about you going to those meetings. I'm afraid you might meet another man and, like, you know, run off or something. Well, he had just come out of an affaired marriage, a failed, affaired marriage. So he had some insecurities. I had moved to Fayetteville at this point. I said, well, can I, can I check him out a little bit? Like, can I just kind of see what the meetings were like? And I went to a few meetings here and there. Um, but, you know, I, I, 
allowed my husband to become my higher power. You know, he was everything I wanted him to be, you know. Um, we were doing the church thing. We were having kids. Uh, he had custody of uh, two out of three of his boys, so I became like an instant stepmom at the ripe old age of 25. Um, you know, life was good, you know. I didn't need the rooms of AA. Psh, they're fine. I did what I got what I needed to get out of the first, what would they say, the first five years when you finally realize what you do need or don't need. Um, but I never, I never picked up, like I never drank, no matter through the adoption, through my dry time, you know, whatever, I never drank. Um, January 26, 2012, my husband had an endoscopy done. We had gone to the doctor about a month before and he had had some stomach problems. So he had an endoscopy and they said everything was fine. We high-fived each other, we went home. And a week later, we get a phone call that said, hey, we need to see your husband tomorrow. And I'm like, tomorrow's Saturday. Like, we got football or something. They're like, yeah, we, we really need you to come. It's kind of important. So we went to the doctor, and they tell us that he has stomach cancer. 39 years old, he gets one of the worst cancers possible. And I, uh, what I had not shared with you all at this point was my brother that I had been drinking with who also is a member of Alcoholics Anonymous who was diagnosed with lung cancer at 28 and I lost him when he was 30. 15, 15 years sober he died and was cremated with a 15-year chip in his pocket. Um, when I celebrated 16 years sober that was kind of a bittersweet moment for me. I never thought I would surpass him. Um, so this is like the second time that I'm dealing with cancer. And the doctor just kept saying he was too young. And I looked at him, I was like, my brother died at 30. What are you talking about too young? Don't you see these 11-year-olds in the pediatric ward with leukemia fighting for their lives? For seven years, um, chemo, radiation, doctor's appointments, and then the pain meds decided to come into the picture. And you want to talk about questioning sobriety. Um, never even thought about Al-Anon, to be honest with you. Um, actually, and I just kept thinking to myself, he's in pain, but he's on a whole lot of pain meds. And I started grieving what I had before he had cancer. So I'm grieving again. And you know, we got the, you're, you're cancer free, like you're good to go, like go back to your normal life. Um, every year around my anniversary, I would go pick up a chip here and there. Sometimes I missed it. Um, I picked up a chip when my brother died. Um, life was still good. I still remembered being powerless. I still remembered, you know, um, having a higher power. I'm going to tell you what, I used my higher power and my husband's journey probably more so than I did in my first early years on recovery. But the part of the third step that no one ever really likes to talk about is the, the higher power that you have faith in. Sometimes he, we know he can move the mountains, but we don't always like where he puts them. And uh, yesterday, a year ago, God moved my husband out of my life. 
Tony's cancer returned two years ago, and he passed away yesterday, a year ago. But I never picked up. I never even thought for a second, let me pick up my alcohol, whatever choice. I didn't even start smoking again. I had a resentment towards my higher power. I had a resentment towards God. I said, how can you bring somebody so amazing into my life and then just take him away? I knew he could cure him, but it wasn't in the cards. So, you know, you go through the funeral, you go through all that craziness. I have five boys, so it was quite an, you know, they, they didn't want to really show their emotions or whatever, but we got through it. We got through the service, and then, you know, everybody goes back to their normal everyday lives. And I, my best friend took me out to California for a girl's trip. And I'm going to tell you what's crazy. God is crazy. God's got a sense of humor, right? So I was like, you know, when you're grieving, there's like this pain in your chest, this knot that like just doesn't ever want to go away. And you think you're having a heart attack all the time. You're not sure if it's indigestion or what. And I remember just praying to God. I was like, listen, I'm going to need you just to take the pain part away. Like I'm tired of hurting. Like, I can cry, but can you, can you make the not go away? And that was the first time I had prayed, actually, in a while. And I had a dream about a friend of mine that I got sober with, and I woke up the next morning going, huh, what was that about? Find this person on social media, and I don't, I don't reach out to people, and this time I did, and we get to talking and come to find out that they're still sober. And I was like, oh. And under one of the 97 babies are still sober. There's only like three or four of us left from that group. My best friend takes me to L.A. for a girl's trip. It was my first girl's trip in ever, probably, well, in probably 15 years. And um, the person that I ran into or had, had the dream about lives out in California. We went out and hung out, and we were talking about different things. And one of the things he said to me was, when was the last time you went to a meeting? Because you are toxic as you know what. And I looked at him and I was like, it, it's, it's, it's been a while. He's like, yeah, you need to go to a meeting. Because the problem is you're trying to control your kid's grief and you can't. And I was like, yes, I can. He was like, yeah, you need to go to a meeting. <laughs> you need to go to a meeting. I got back to Fayetteville and... Um, I waited about a week, but I looked some meetings up, and then I went to a meeting. And I remember going, oh my gosh, they're all going to think I'm new. And then when I raise my hand for a year or more, they're going to think I'm a liar. Well, that was my first problem, worrying about what everyone else was going to think, because we're all messed up in the head, right? Like, we're all little cray-cray, and um, we're selfish, and, you know, we think the world's about us, and everyone's looking at us. Um, but I went in and I remember reading the 12 traditions and they just came right out, you know, like I didn't even need the paper. Like I just could ramble them off and I was like, yes, I still got it. No, I didn't. I didn't. And after the meeting, I felt so good that I went to another meeting right afterwards. And then I went to another meeting the next day and I was hitting like two meetings a day. And then my kids were like, um, mom, are, are you going to make dinner? And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Just fend for yourself tonight. I got a meeting. And they're like, what are these meetings? And I was like, it, it's, it's great, it's great. But I didn't have a sponsor, and I was like, oh, I gotta go find a sponsor. How am I gonna find a sponsor with over 22 years? 
that's going to be kind of hard. But it's not about time. It's about recovery. And I needed to find a woman that worked the steps, that had a solid program, that wasn't going to tap me on the shoulder and say it's going to be okay, that was going to look at me and say, you need to accept the fact that you're grieving or you need to accept the fact that you've lost your husband and it sucks and it's horrible and it's painful and you need to pray to God about it. And I said, I don't want to pray to God about it because God took my higher power. I'm going to let you sit with that one for a minute because that was where I was at. Um, I found a sponsor and she asked me how my prayer life was. And I said, oh, there really isn't a prayer life. She's like, yeah, I'm going to need you to get on your knees twice a day and pray. I was like, you want me to pray to the same being that took the love of my life from me? Yeah, okay. She's like, yeah, I'm going to need you to do it. So I did. And before my knees hit the floor, I was bawling. And all I could say is, why? I didn't understand why God would take somebody so amazing out of this world, why he would take my children's father. I didn't understand. But what I forgot, and, and I, you know, going back to meetings and, and working, reworking a third step for me was the greatest blessing I could ask for. Because I started to trust in God again. And I started finding myself saying, you know what? Thank you for giving me 12 amazing years with a man that respected me, with a man that loved me. I'm deserving of that. And for me, that was huge. I was never somebody's girlfriend. I was like the one on the side, the one with the benefits. So I never felt like I was good enough. And my husband taught me that I was good enough. And when he left, it was like I had all these insecurities that, that my husband robbed me of, right? And when he died, it's like he returned what he stole. And so all those insecurities came back. But when I had faith in higher power again in my God, and saying, you know what, I'm going to get through this one day at a time. I may have a bad day today, but that's okay because the sun's going to come up tomorrow. I'm going to put both feet on the floor, and I'm just going to keep going, you know. Um, and that's what Alcoholics Anonymous taught me. And did I take a break from the rooms for a little bit? Yes, I did. I had to care for a man that needed me. But had I never gotten sober, had I never put the effort in and worked those steps and, and, and got grateful and, you know, sponsored other people. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to be there for him. I remember talking to his ex-wife saying, what is the worst thing you have ever been through in your life where you just really hated God? And she's like, my divorce. I said, yeah, but had you and Tony never gotten divorced, he never would have come home from Iraq. We never would have found out about his cancer. Aiden and Ashton, our two little ones, never would have existed, and Alec and Austin would have grown up without a dad. She's like, I never thought of it that way. And I said, God's got a plan. I don't always like it, but I have to have faith that there's a plan out there for me. And that's what these rooms have given me, you know? And, you know, today, 
my life is, it's awesome. My life is full of service, talking to other widows. I sponsor people in AA. I have a sponsor that I call. My sponsor has a sponsor. It's not always about, you know, do I want to pick up a drink today? It's about, do I want to show up for life today? And they say that in the 12 and 12. In the beginning, in, in chapter 1, or when it talks about step 1, it talks about the young people in AA and thank God they didn't have to go through those other 10, 15 years of, you know, whatever word they say. I don't look it up. <laughs> but they don't have to go through that 10, 15 years of pain in order to find the solution. And I'm grateful that I didn't have to go through that, you know. And I have... You know, my kids grow up in a, an environment where there isn't any drugs or alcohol or cigarettes. You know, my front door is not revolving because my husband taught me where I respect myself today. You know, um, that's, that's kind, of, kind of a good feeling, you know. Um, I love giving back. You know, I love, you know... Um, I'll share this. Three weeks ago, three days after Christmas, I got a phone call from my friend's daughter. Um, I couldn't understand her. And all I heard was paramedics, daddy, sissy, accident. And I ran out of Walmart, and I went to my friend's house. And her daughter and her husband were driving back to Georgia, and they were T-boned. And her daughter died. She was crushed. She was 15. And they say that when you can help somebody through an experience that you got through, then you have truly grieved, you've truly accepted, and you've truly become somebody that can give back and be of service. And that's a really awesome feeling, which is why I'm so big on sponsorship. Um, I've sponsored women that I stopped sponsoring that called me years later because they were pregnant and they talk about adoption. I have women that I mentor through the cancer journey. And I actually apply the 12 steps through that journey. The difference between alcoholism and cancer a lot of times cancer patients don't sit there and think that they're pieces of poop, right? They don't feel bad about themselves. They rise above. But the journey is the same. A family awkward chapter, or a family afterwards chapter in the big book, I just read it. Um, we read it the other night, and it reminded me of my journey. I took over everything, you know? Um, and all I can think is, like, thank God I never picked up. You know, my kids still have me today. I don't have plans of picking up. I don't have some, you know, amazing message or whatever. I'm just a mom that has gone through some stuff, you know. But I think the message today is it's okay to have a resentment sometimes towards your higher power because that means you believe in him. Because you can't believe in something that you don't get mad at once in a while. Thank you so much for letting me talk to all of you guys today. It's been a while since I've been at the podium, but it feels really good. And um, 
gratitude. It's an action word. You know. So I'll keep coming back. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you have a comment, suggestion, or just need help, you can email Shank and Wayne at freedom at alcoholicsalive.com. Remember, we're recovered members of Alcoholics Anonymous, but we do not speak for Alcoholics Anonymous, nor do we get paid. Join us next week for another great episode. Thank you.